We're going to turn again to uh, the first letter of John, 1 John. Um, You'll remember, uh, perhaps if you were here last week or if you know the letter, that uh, John is writing to the churches in Asia Minor at the end of the first century, and he's writing, I think, with two main uh, overlapping purposes in mind. Um, Firstly, he's dealing with error that's being brought into the churches by uh, false teachers, and they seem to be attacking the, 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 the truth about who Jesus is. And they seem to be saying that it doesn't really matter how you live, holiness isn't important, and they seem to be causing division and lack of love in the church. And uh, so on the one hand, John is writing to deal head-on with those false teachers and these false teachings that threaten the church. And at the same time, he's writing to the believers, to the churches, to give them assurance in the face of that false teaching that they have eternal life through believing in Jesus, that they can stick with the truth that they've been taught and they they may be sure that they are saved. And so both of those things are relevant for us today. The church is all under attack from false teaching and we thought quite a lot about that last week. And uh, at the same time, we always need confidence and reassurance in the face of those things that we, by trusting in Jesus, really do have eternal life. So that's that's 1 John. we're going to read the whole of the first chapter and into the first two verses of chapter 2 and we'll be picking up in terms of the sermon from, from verse 5 of chapter 1. So page 1021 then, 1 John chapter 1, beginning at verse 1. Let's, let's read together. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and touched with our hands concerning the word of life, The life was made manifest and we have seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaimed to you, that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus Christ's Son cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin... We deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. So we face an important, a, a crucial question this evening, and it's this. What is our attitude, what is your attitude towards sin in your life as a Christian? Is sin something that you think about 
and worry about a lot? Or is it something that honestly rarely comes to mind? And if you're not yet a believer, what do you think about sin? If you're someone here to, tonight and you've trusted in Jesus, I guess that's many of us, then, 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 then we know, don't we, that we're forgiven for all of our sins, past, present and future. However, the fact remains, we still sin. So the challenge is, in the light of that, how do we think about sin correctly? And it's quite easy and quite possible for us to get that wrong and to fall into various errors and mistakes or wrong attitudes. Maybe for someone here, well, you don't really think about sin in your life very much at all. Sure, you know you're not perfect. Okay, I'm not perfect. Who is? If God saved me, then, well, I know I should try harder. But to be honest, I don't think it really matters that much. I'm forgiven, aren't I? I'm going to live kind of how I want, really. I'm not going to admit to saying that, but that's kind of what I think. But perhaps for someone else here, well, you're so conscious of your sin. It's so hard on you, it weighs so heavily on you, and it, it, at times it just utterly overwhelms you. You find yourself wondering, am I, am I saved at all? You know, how can I keep failing in the same way over and over again? What's wrong with me? Is God eventually going to lose patience with me? Perhaps many of us know that struggle. I guess for a lot of us, we probably sit somewhere in the middle or flip between the two. There are times when we don't think about our sin much at all and there are times when it's, it's really tough for us. Sometimes blind to it, sometimes anxious about it, sometimes feeling things are going well, other times not so much at all. And I think that our temperaments affect the way we think and feel about it and our life experience and our, our situation and the things that are going on around us often sort of interact with the way that we think about sin. So the challenge for us then is to uh, sub- submit ourselves and our lives and to, to the word of God and understand what, what God has to tell us in his word. What should our attitude be? How do we get this balance right? How do we think correctly about sin? And, and this passage actually is really helpful when it comes to that. Um, John is really dealing head on with this issue. It seems clear from, from the way this passage is set out that there were some very wrong understandings about sin going on in the church, presumably from the false teachers who were causing all these problems. And so we've got three statements in, in this passage that are just wrong statements about how we should think about and relate to sin as believers. And then John shows us the consequences of those and then rather wonderfully gives us the right way of thinking in response. And those right ways are rich and helpful to us. So by looking at these three errors, we guard ourselves, but we also think very positively, how, how do I relate to sin correctly as a, as a believer? Um, if you've got your, your, your notice sheet there, it would be worth um, turning it over and looking at the structure because it's a little bit more complicated. I've set out for each of those three errors the, a definition of the error, what the implication is, and then what is the right attitude. So you might find that helpful to have that in front of you. And actually my first point is what you've got there is the heading God is light. So we'll start with that. And that's very important. We don't start with ourselves here. We start with God So my first point is this, God is light. And of course that's coming from verse 5. Now the the, the theme of God is light is a massive one and it it has quite a multifaceted meaning. Uh, Robin reflected quite richly on that earlier and when we read John's Gospel often the primary focus is that God is truth. And certainly in this passage here we see God as truth. We have the contrast between truth and error over and over again. 
I think actually, though, as we look at it in this immediate context with the issues of sin coming up, that, that perhaps the first thing or the main thing we need to focus on today is that God is light, points to his holiness, his total moral perfection. So God is light, he is holy, and there is no darkness, no sin in him at all. I think that's, that's how it's helpful for us to see and understand it that way. So when you look at the, um, uh, the world around you, what's the most sort of glorious, overwhelmingly bright and light thing that you can see? It's the sun, isn't it? So when you look at the sun, it's glorious and it's bright and it's, it's overwhelming. Even, even on a summer's day here in Edinburgh, the sun is bright and, and glorious. And it, it just does nothing that compares to it that, that we can see. Um, perhaps some of you, hopefully a few of you are old enough to remember, back at the, the turn of the millennium there was a, a solar eclipse and there was a lot of advice given out back then saying, whatever you do, don't watch the eclipse by looking directly at the sun because you'll damage your eyes, it's too bright and too powerful. So we, there were sort of contraptions and things that enabled you to see what was going on by seeing a reflection or a shadow and not looking directly at it. And that reminds us just how powerfully bright the sun is, even at a huge distance away through a thick and protective atmosphere. We still can't look at the sun. And the sun is glorious, really, and bright and light beyond anything that we can imagine looking at. But actually, when you look at the sun, if you get images of the sun that are taken closer up, even in the brightest thing that we can see in our world, in our universe, there are little dark spots, sunspots, there are cooler patches, they look like imperfections. The sun is not as perfectly bright and light as you might think. But when we look at God, his light is overwhelming. His holiness is vastly beyond anything we can imagine. We couldn't even dream to look at it and live. And with God, there are no dark spots. There are no sunspots. There are no cooler patches. There are no imperfections. God, in all his being, is perfectly and purely holy. Remember Isaiah. Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 6, had this vision, which was his commissioning to go and preach the good news and preach to the people. He sees the Lord sat on the throne, surrounded by the seraphim, who even they must cover their faces before him. And they're crying out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. Do you remember Isaiah's response? Woe is me, for I am lost. For I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. There is no other reaction to a holy God but to, to cower away. And yet, just as Isaiah knew, the wonder of the gospel is that through Jesus Christ we may know that God. We, may, we are adopted by him. We call him Father. We are welcomed into relationship with him, fellowship with him, that we were thinking about last week through Jesus Christ. And that's a glorious thing. And we're declared righteous and our sin is not seen, in a sense. But we must come back now to our original question. We know that in our legal standing before God as believers, our sin is not seen because the righteousness of Christ is seen. But the reality in our daily life is, is different, of course. We do sin. So our question is, what is our attitude now to sin? How do we think about it? We're a people saved by grace in relationship with a holy God, but still frequently we're drawn into and tempted into sin. So we look at ourselves in comparison to this God and we see darkness. We see failure. We see sin. So what do we do? How do we get this right? 
Well, it seems in these, these verses then, the three errors that you've got set out for you seem to be bad attempts at dealing with that. Um, so error number one, it doesn't matter how we live. It doesn't matter how we live. This is the first false attitude. And we have it here in, in verse six. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness. So here you are. You're sat here on Sunday evening and uh, enjoying being in church. The, the songs have been wonderful tonight and they, and they really have. They've been moving. And uh, you appreciate the sermon sometimes and you know the fellowship with God's people is great and you go out and, and, and day by day you even tell people that you've trusted in Jesus and that you're saved and you're a Christian. But in your life, if you're honest with yourself, you really make no attempt to live a holy life. You give in to temptation straight away. Anger, pride, laziness, lust, whatever it is, with no real concern at all. I'm forgiven after all. But perhaps it's more likely for more of us that it's a bit more subtle than that. I know, someone says, I ought to try and live a holy life. But at the end of the day, Jesus has died for my sins and I am going to heaven. I am going to be in the new heavens and earth. And oh, does it really matter if I just carry on living as I choose, as long as I repent later, does it really matter? I wonder how many of us here have had that attitude from time to time in our lives. I know that I have. Or maybe for someone else, well, the fight's been tough against sin. And it's just been too tough for you. And you've kind of just given in and you're just drifting along and, you know, sin happens, but that's just how it is and you haven't got the fight anymore. Well, the Bible calls us to wake up. It calls us to think. It calls us to listen. It calls us back to the God we've just been thinking about. You see, who is the God that we claim to be in relationship with? Who is the God that we claim to know? It's the God who is light and in whom there is no darkness at all. It can't be possible, can it, to be in relationship with a perfectly and purely holy God if there's no attempt in our lives and no evidence in our lives at all to live in a holy manner, in a Christ-like way. You know, when the sun rises, what happens to the darkness? It's gone, isn't it? And this time of year, it's kind of frustrating, actually, because the sun comes up at, I don't know, 5 a.m., and you're wanting to sleep, and, well, my curtains never seem to be good enough, and I'm awake at 5, thinking, I wish it was still dark. The beautiful, quiet darkness of my room, well, it's, it's gone, and, and there's light streaming in, and I want to sleep for another two hours, and I can't. And, you know, the, the, the darkness can't stay there when the sun comes up and blows it away. You can go and lock yourself in your cellar, or shut your shutters, but otherwise... As soon as this light comes into contact with the darkness, the darkness has to go. So it's not possible with God to be in relationship, to be in fellowship with a holy God and just live how you want. It just can't be done. It doesn't work. And if we get this wrong, what does John have to say? It's quite serious, actually. What's the implication here? If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, what? We lie and do not practice the truth. In other words, someone who never is seeking to live a holy life, who doesn't change at all, who has no interest in changing, who doesn't get it, who doesn't see the needs, that person cannot be telling the truth about their fellowship, their relationship with God. And friends, we all get this wrong. 
but it tells us how important it is that we seek to live a holy life. So the error is, doesn't matter how we live. The implication, we're liars. The truth's not in us. But what about the correct approach? Because this is where John wants us to get to. And I've, I've summarised it as this. Live holy lives knowing forgiveness because of Jesus. Live holy lives forgiving, knowing forgiveness because of Jesus. So verse 7. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus' his son cleanses us from all sin. We're to walk in the light, he says, as he is in the light. Now if we pause and think about that, walk in the light as God is in the light. The God who has no imperfections, who's staggeringly, extraordinarily holy in every way. Does it mean that we must completely stop all sin? Because if so, we've got a problem, haven't we? Well, in the context of this passage, we see that that's absolutely wrong. We see later on that we're going to sin. And we're going to keep sinning. And that's just how it is. Though we make progress. No. And the verse isn't here to discourage us. John isn't giving us an impossible statement so that we can see that we're not up to it. I guess we might have had really tough weeks battling against sin. We might have really struggled. We might not be taking it seriously enough. And is John now telling us that even our best efforts are no good? Well, of course, when it comes to our salvation, that's true. But when we've been saved, what does it mean for us? And I think it's this. I think, I think the point is that we've changed from one life to another. A life, or we've got a new life that starts with repentance and goes in a new direction. We've changed direction from a life that walks happily along a road called sin that leads to death and destruction and hell. And now we're on a road called life that leads to eternal life, that is eternal life, that is Jesus. We've changed directions. We've taken the car off the one road and we've put it onto the new road. Now we no longer, in the old days, sin characterised who we were and how we lived and what we prioritised. But now, living according to God's commands and becoming Christ-like and becoming more like Jesus, that is now what characterises our lives. We're free from that old life. We're no longer slaves. But it's tough. And we fail. And we fall. But there's been a fundamental change where those who desire and seek to live holy as God is holy. I think that's the point here. We battle and we struggle. We do. The road is tough at times. But we have new life. We have a new existence. We're in Christ now. And what's so important here is we remember that when we fall, it in no way affects our salvation. Our acceptance before God doesn't depend on our extent of our obedience. What does it depend on? When we sin, what does it say? The blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. That's the truth. The foundation for our acceptance before God and the basis for our ongoing forgiveness is the blood of Jesus Christ. You see, he died on in our place, didn't he? His life was poured out for us. And his blood, which is the giving up of his life, cleanses us from the guilt and the pollution of sin. And we know forgiveness through Jesus on the basis of what he's done. That's the basis of all our acceptance before God. If we're Christians, we know that. We must remember that. We must hold on to that. But out of it must flow a life that seeks to be 
ever more like Jesus that seeks to obey. So that's the first thing. We started with the great statement, God is light. In him is no darkness at all. We see here then that we live holy lives knowing forgiveness because of Jesus. That's the lesson from the first error. Now here's the second error. Error number two, we don't have a sinful nature. We find that in verse 8. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Now this statement and the next one are quite close. And some people have identified them as being basically the same. But I think there is a difference here. If we say we have no sin, refers to our nature. The fact that we have still, even as believers, we have a sinful nature within us. And it seems in John's day that that was being in some way denied. And it's possible for us to do the same. To to neglect the fact, to ignore the fact, to reject the fact that we still have sin remaining in us whilst we're in this world. Indwelling sin, it's sometimes known as. And I guess this is a mistake we might easily make. We've been given new life, haven't we? We've been given a new nature. We're no longer slaves of sin. We're in Christ now. We're dead to that old life. It's been crucified with Jesus. Therefore, hasn't this old nature gone completely? Aren't I free now to just live the life that um, I, I, I would live for God? Well, John doesn't totally agree. You see, we still have sin remaining in us, fighting with us. There's a battle going on in us. In Romans, Paul says that Even as a believer, sin dwells within him. We are changed. We are regenerated. We are set free. But there's a battle going on. And we're not only fighting against external enemies, the world around us that tries to entice us into sin, and we're not only fighting against the devil who tempts us and accuses us and attacks us like a roaring lion. No, we also fight against our own sinful, remaining sinful nature. That's a tough fight. So if we get this wrong, what's the implication? We deceive ourselves. If we get this wrong, we deceive ourselves. And you might well deceive yourself. But of course, having a sinful nature or having remaining sin in us always results in sinful actions. So you might deceive yourself, but ask your husband or your wife or your friend or your brother or your sister... Do I have a sinful nature? I don't think I've got one anymore. And I can see one or two people looking at each other out there. I think you'll get an honest answer. You have a sinful nature. But there's another way. I think there's another sense that we can deceive ourselves here. Perhaps particularly for someone who's not been a Christian very long or is still learning some of the basics of the faith. Um, When we're saved, we sort of imagine that we've moved from into a whole new existence. And and in a sense, we have. But if you don't realise when you're saved that the depths of sin that remains in us, it's very possible, I think, that our assurance comes under attack. Because if we don't get that we've got sin in us and we're being attacked from the inside as well as the out, we can find ourselves losing our sense of assurance in our salvation. How can I possibly be sinning like this over and over again? I've been saved. I'm a Christian now. What's wrong with me? I can't seem to stop giving in to this same thing and I'm so weary of it. Maybe this Christianity thing doesn't work. Or maybe it does but I'm not saved. Maybe God doesn't want me. Maybe God isn't, hasn't really saved me. It brings despair. It brings lack of assurance. But if we get this right, if we understand that sin remains in us, we won't deceive ourselves in that way. 
You know, how can I keep on being so selfish and arrogant and losing my temper? And how can I not beat lust? Well, you can, but it's hard. Remember Apostle Paul, a mature, godly, wise Christian. Romans chapter 7. Here he is speaking as a, as a believer. And he says there in verse 19, For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. You know that, don't you? I keep on doing it. Now if I do what I do not want, and this is important too, this is the balance, it's no longer I who do it, because I've changed, I have life now, I'm, I'm in Jesus now. It's no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. It's this dead body of sin that I'm carrying around that I have to keep fighting, that is so invasive and so frustrating. And he goes on to say later, wretched man that I am. Who's not felt that? Honestly, wretched person that I am. Who would deliver me from this body of death? And of course the glorious answer is the deliverance continues to be there. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. We must acknowledge this. We must see that walking in the light is a real battle. Relationship with the Holy God is tough in the sense that we must keep fighting. And we know that we will keep sinning and we will keep falling. So that's the truth then. What do we do with that though? What's the correct approach given that that is sadly true in this life? Here it is, the correct approach. We confess our sins knowing that God is forgiven. That God forgives. We confess our sins knowing that God forgives. So it means, in other words, that our lives must be lives that are full with confession of sin. That's so important for us to grasp. Look at verse 9. If, and this is such a famous verse, isn't it? We'll, we'll need to pause on it a little bit to, to remind ourselves of it. Verse 9, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The Christian life Though we make progress, though we become more like Christ, though we have victory, at the same time, it's a life that will have frequent sin and therefore must have frequent, frequent confession of sin. It's why the Lord's Prayer, or this great model prayer, has this line in it. Forgive us our debts, as we forgive our debtors. Forgive us our debts. Confession must be part of our daily prayer routine. And it's worth noting as well that the verse says we confess our sins because the sinful nature always results in acts of sin. And we don't just confess in a general sense that we're sinful, but we confess sinful acts before God that we've actually committed. Detailed. Real. That's what's meant here. We just have to deal with a couple of misconceptions, I guess. First one is this. Does this mean we must confess every single sin otherwise we won't be forgiven? Well, no, clearly not, because if we grasp the real depth of sin that the Bible shows us, we don't know them all even. But we must be serious about confessing the sins we know. And of course, we're already forgiven, because Jesus has already paid the price. Does this mean also that I should be confessing to a minister or a priest, and that will be more effective? Well, no. Who's being confessed to here? The one who's offended and the one who offers forgiveness is God. And one more thing. When I sin, 
Does that mean that I fall out of fellowship? Do I break my relationship with God and have to be joined back together with him again? Once again, no. I think a helpful way to think about it perhaps is this. We've been adopted into God's family. We are sons and daughters. We are heirs. And that is eternally true. And most of us here are in families. And we have parents or had parents. And they continue to be our parents. We sin against them sometimes. We upset them. We offend them. We put ourselves at distance from them. But they're still our parents. But nevertheless, we must come back and confess that we've failed and look for forgiveness and restoration. And I think that's closer. We're always sons and daughters. But when we sin, we must confess and no renewed forgiveness. Okay, so that's what confession looks like. Regular, detailed, serious confession of our sins before our Heavenly Father. If we confess our sins, then he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So once again, John assures us now that that when we confess our sins to God, we have this forgiveness. And of course, the cleansing, as we've already seen, comes through the blood of Jesus Christ, his finished work on the cross 2,000 years ago. And that's a glorious thing. We'll always be forgiven. Even when we think, can God really forgive me anymore? Even when we fall for the same old sin, the 10,000th time in one week, yes, he will forgive. We know it's true. But we should slow down a little bit on this verse, actually. There's two little words in here that because this verse is so familiar that we can just kind of skip over. Those two words are what? He's faithful and he is just. And those are powerful words. The truths behind them are are extraordinary. Firstly, God will forgive us and we know he'll forgive us because he's faithful. What is he faithful to? He's faithful to his promises, to his covenant promises, to his people. Read the Bible, it's full of them. He will never leave us or forsake us. He forgives all our iniquities. He will finish the work he has begun in us. He will lead us afterward to glory. And so many more. And when God promises, he keeps his promises. And when you've sinned again, and you're sat there thinking, maybe this time God won't forgive me, what kind of God doesn't forgive? Only an unfaithful God. But our God is faithful. He will forgive. But not only faithful, he's just as well. So what does this word mean? Because we we get, I think, that God is just. He's a holy God and he must, by his very nature, punish sin. Sin must be dealt with. Justice must be meted out. Sin cannot go unpunished because that's contrary to God's character. So we're perhaps wondering right now, how does that help us? But of course, Jesus, if we believe as Jesus has taken the punishment in our place. And in Romans chapter 3, Paul reminds us that God sent Jesus so that he can be both at the same time just, he has to punish sin, and at the same time the justifier of those who come in faith, who have faith in Jesus. He's just and justify the one who has faith in Jesus. So Jesus comes and he takes the punishment of all our sin, and therefore God is just to to save us and to forgive us. Isn't that extraordinary? Because the sinless Saviour died, we're going to sing later, my sinful soul is counted free, for God the just is satisfied to look on him 
and pardon me. And actually, we can take that even further. Think of it like this. If you find yourself in financial difficulty and you could no longer pay your mortgage payments every month and, and you were going to lose the house and, and you didn't know how you were going to manage. And, and, uh, but a rich relative came along and they paid off the whole balance, all the hundreds of thousands of your mortgage for you in one go. Would it be just, would it be right that the bank then came along next month and says, give us the payment that you owe? No, because there's no payment. That would be unjust. And at the same time, if, as, if a criminal has served their time in prison and they've gone free, can the state come back and say, we're going to put you back in prison, you need to serve some more? No, because that's unjust. So whichever way we think about this, it is justice has been, if justice has been served, if the price has been paid, there is no more justice to be served, no more price to be paid. So actually the only kind of God who could, who could not forgive you is an unjust one and we know that God is just so when you're sat there thinking can God really forgive me again his justice demands that he forgives you he can do nothing else and he will do nothing else isn't that glorious he will forgive because he's faithful and he's just no matter how hard you feel your sin no matter how much you doubt it he must forgive and he will forgive and he loves to forgive so let's be encouraged by that we know that God is light that's where we started he's perfectly holy we live holy lives knowing that we're forgiven because of Jesus and then we confess our sins knowing that God forgives and the third error here is this we don't sin error three we don't sin we imagine that that we don't do things wrong we don't break God's commands and that's in verse 10 Verse 10, if we say we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar and his word is not in us. Now it seems probable that some people in the church in John's day were saying that they don't commit acts of sin anymore. And uh, there is a teaching in the world today uh, uh, that is sinless perfection, the idea that in some sense that Christians can, can get to a point where they no longer sin. And if anyone here thinks that, then read these verses carefully because I think they pretty much explode that belief. But I guess that's probably not most of us. So how can we fall into this trap, is the question, isn't it? Because I don't say I'm, I'm not a sinner. I don't think that theologically. But perhaps there are several ways. Here's one. We just grow insensitive to our sin. We stop noticing it. It just becomes a normal part of life and we don't even think about it. We don't, in other words, we don't hold ourselves up to the mirror of God's word and see what our lives really look like and then repent and move forward. We just kind of drift along. I think that's one thing. If you're doing that, come to God's word and see yourself as you are and see Jesus in all the wonder and beauty that he is. Here's another way. I think it would be very easy for us to, to get in a muddle here just by drinking in what the world around us says and thinks about sin. Because how often does the world around us talk about sin in any serious way? Well, not at all, does it? Not really. The world around us explains away bad behaviour. They say, well, they were under a lot of pressure. It's natural the way they behaved. We say, I'm not quite myself today. I'm sorry for my behaviour, you know, because something else has got to me. And simple behaviour psychologically is often explained away in terms of circumstances. Events earlier in our lives. 
difficult upbringings and childhoods, abuse in the past, and not rebellion against God, but psychological and other types of explanation. And if we drink that in, we fall into error. Now, I'm not for a minute wishing to deny that circumstances affect us deeply. I'm not saying that the past history and abuse and difficult upbringings and and things we've been through don't change us and and affect us in such a way that we're prone to sin in a particular way and we find certain things very hard. They do, they absolutely do. But whatever our circumstances, whatever we've been through, we must see that sinful actions are an offence against the Holy God and need to be repented of and need to be dealt with seriously. Why does this matter? What's the implication? If we effectively say that we don't commit sinful acts, we accuse God of being a liar, and that's serious. It's a serious matter to get this wrong, isn't it? If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. So we must, as Christians, be sensitive to our sin, and see it for what it really is. But what's the correct approach here? Where do we end? And we really do end in a glorious place. We come back to Jesus again. Look at chapter 2 and verse 1. Our correct approach is this. We acknowledge our sins, trusting in Jesus who's pleading for us. We acknowledge our sins, trusting in Jesus who's pleading for us. My little children, he writes, and and John has such an affection for his readers that we, we can't ever think he's being harsh on us. My little children... I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He's the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but for the sins of the whole world. I'm writing these things to you you, so that you may not sin. So we're reminded of where we started, that it's seriously important that we fight sin, that we we move forward, that we grow in Christ's likeness, that we don't think that just living a life of sin is okay. That really matters. And John desires that we may not sin. But at the same time, he knows that in our lives we will sin. But if anyone does sin, and and that's not kind of a a hypothetical statement that perhaps someone over there at the back might sin next week. No, it's it's an acknowledgement and an understanding that we will indeed sin, as sad and as bad as that is. If anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. We've been thinking wonderfully, haven't we, about Christ's finished work on the cross 2,000 years ago and how that ensures that God must justly and, and loves to justly forgive. But we also can think now, what is Jesus doing today? What is Jesus doing right now? And one of the things he's doing is he's praying, he's pleading for us. Our great high priest is pleading for us. Before the throne of God above, I have a strong, a perfect plea. A great high priest whose name is love. Whoever lives and pleads for me. We have an advocate with the Father. So Jesus is like an advocate in court, speaking on our behalf, pleading our case before God the Father. And here we are, ever so conscious of our sin. Here we are despairing over our failure. And don't we do that? And we look up and we see a God who loves to forgive. We've seen that already. And we look up and see a God who is totally just in forgiving because of what Jesus has done. 
But the wonderful truth here that we see is that even today, at the very precise moment when we sin, at the point when we failed at our very worst and we feel absolutely destroyed and terrible about it, we look up and we see our beautiful Saviour, Jesus Christ, who is both God and man, standing before God, pleading the case for us that we might be forgiven. And what is the case? What is the case that he presents? Because that matters too, doesn't it? Is he saying this? The sin wasn't that bad. No. Is he saying this? They'll try better next time. I hope not, because I might not. But he's not saying that. Is he saying this? They didn't really know what they're doing. No, because we probably did. This is what he's pleading. Himself. He is pleading himself. Jesus Christ pleads his own work on the cross. That is the case that he puts. He is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Jesus is the plea. What does propitiation mean? Well, a propitiation is one who turns away the wrath of another. So Jesus, by his sacrifice on the cross 2,000 years ago, which he is even now pleading before God, turns away the wrath of God. And it's not that God is angry and grumpy with us and that Jesus wants him to change his mind and he does so very reluctantly. Because, of course, it's, it's God himself who sent Jesus. It's, God, it's, the, it's the Father and the Son who agreed together before the foundation of the world to save a people for themselves, for their glory. And that's glorious, isn't it, for God's glory? But the Son presents himself and his sacrifice. So when you sin, as we close, when you sin, look up. Look up. When Satan tempts you to despair, look up. What's happening before the Father's throne? Jesus is pleading for you. And it's as though he says, look at the scars on my hands and the mark on my side and look at my feet. Look at the suffering that I bore. Look at the wrath that was poured out on me. And forgive them. Forgive them because of what I have done. And that's what we do. And that's where we look. And the Father who loved us before the foundation of the world loves to forgive his people. Isn't that more glorious than anything we could ever know. Friends, that's the relation we have with God. That's the saviour we have. That's the life that John wants us to know and understand. And if you've never trusted Jesus before today, this is the, the life, this is the love, this is the certainty that can be yours through faith in Jesus Christ. So, we know that God is light. He's holy. We live holy lives knowing that we're forgiven because of Jesus. We confess our sins knowing that God forgives and we acknowledge our sins trusting in Jesus who is even today pleading for us.